I'm here with Father Augustine Weta. He is a Benedictine monk of the St. Louis Priory and uh, also a chaplain for the school there. Father Augustine, we just shot a show with Life on the Rock, so I'm glad to be able to talk with you a little more. I, you know what I'm struck about your book is that you, you draw from the, the weight of the Benedictine rule and apply it to modern people and modern language. Tell us, you work a lot with young people, what are some of the principles you keep coming back and teaching them when you teach them? Well, I, let's see. Um, Botically, <laughs> um, I think silence, I keep coming back to silence, first of all. And maybe that is the first thing you need to start with because until you stop to listen, you're not going to hear any advice. So um, silence, first of all. And, and these kids, their lives are sometimes completely devoid of silence. they listening to the radio, playing on the internet, playing video games. They're, they're actually, I find that sometimes they're actually frightened of silence. So I think silence is one. Um, apologies are another. I don't know if that quite fits neatly with silence, but being quick to apologize, even, even when you're not sure you're at fault, I think <laughs> is is a good policy. It's certainly St. Benedict's policy. Um, and obedience. None of these are popular. I don't know why they keep asking me back. <laughs> but, but really, you've got to admit, you know, I, I tell the kids, if you want to be unique, well, every, every teenage, the world is not short on teenage angst. You know, every teenager in the world thinks his parents are idiots. And that he's the smartest person who ever lived. So if you want to be unique, if you want to set yourself apart, then actually obey your parents. You know, consider the possibility that their combined intelligence and wisdom may be more than yours. And while we're at it, the church, you know, if unless until you're holier than Mother Teresa, wiser than St. Francis of Assisi, and smarter than St. Thomas Aquinas, you might as well just concede that they're right on Sunday Mass and confession, for example. <laughs> so, okay, uh, yeah, silence, apologies, and obedience. I, I think I keep coming back to those three. How about in your own experience, um, you're a Benedictine monk. I mean, I find it's true for us. We're in the, drenched in the media world. Um, did you have a hard time even finding silence in the monastery, so to speak? Oh, a yes, absolutely. And now with the ubiquity of the internet and uh, God help us, cell phones. I got my, I made my first cell phone call this afternoon. Uh, no, yesterday afternoon, and now I am officially connected. And that means that even when I go back to my cell, I I'm not really alone. I mean. Well, and you guys, I, I suspect, feel it far more than we do. Friars, who are, whose job it is to be out in the world, you can't even uh, escape to your cloister now. Uh, and with the Internet, the absolute, absolutely everything in the world, good and bad, and, and worse than bad, I mean, vile, is immediately accessible anywhere you want, anywhere you are. And that, yes, it's really difficult. I know, I, I know of a monk who during our meditation, will shut himself into his closet <laughs> to pray <laughs> because it's that distracting even to be in his cell. Wow. 
I remember talking with you before, and you told a great story in your own discernment that you were struggling, ready to leave. You go into <laughs> your uh, superior, and what happened? <laughs> yeah, the, this is, I think my students know this as story number two or something. <laughs> I tell it so often. Yeah, I had I had decided I was leaving, and so I, as I always do when I make a big decision, I go to one of the old monks. And and as a side note, it's also a real shame that we don't live with the elderly anymore, that we kind of sequester them, because gosh, I I, I rely so heavily on the oldest members of our community. Um, anyway, I went to visit Abbot Patrick. And uh, he's, he was, gosh, I guess, 89 or 90, and he was asleep in his room. And I said, Father Abbott, and he kind of woke up and looked at me, and he said, hello, <laughs> as he always did, as though I were the first person he'd ever seen in his life. <laughs> and I said, Father Abbott, uh, I'm leaving. And he said, oh, today? <laughs> Which, not, not phased at all, just, okay. I, I, and I said, well, um, no, probably not today. He said, very well, be the best monk you can today. Then tomorrow you can leave. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, it's been, now it's been 20, 21 years in the monastery, and every day is pretty much like that. You know, I can leave tomorrow. <laughs> but today, by golly, I'm going to be the best monk. When you When you see guys leave the community, and gosh, I guess you've, seen it too, that they, they, they don't actually decide, they, don't, they never really make the decision until they're halfway out the door, um, that they start becoming mediocre at what they do. And heck, for that, for that matter, I'm thinking students and married people, I mean, this holds true for everybody, doesn't it? That you, don't, you, you slide into mediocrity and then decide to quit. Without ever making the decision, and what Abbot Patrick did for me is he forced me to make the decision that day, right. <laughs> and just for that day. Because if you think to yourself, "Am I going to stay for the next sixty years, or am I going to leave?" <laughs> well, that's just that's horrifying, you know. But I can make it another day. <laughs> and how do you keep out of mediocrity? Oh. I don't. <laughs> yeah, now that you mention it, I guess I am mediocre. I just, um, I just keep it. Well, well, I know. I, <laughs> I'll, I'll fall back on another old monk. I asked one of the old guys if he was, if he knew he was going to heaven, and he said, "When I think about myself, when I focus on all the horrible things I've done and the mean person I am and my incompetency, then I'm, I'm absolutely certain I'm going to hell." And then he said, uh, but you know, when I think about God and his infinite grace and gratitude and generosity, well, then I'm absolutely certain I'm going to heaven. So I try not to look at myself too much. <laughs> so I guess the, the key to, I mean, I, you are inevitably mediocre. I mean, who, who of us ever lives up to his full potential? But you focus on God and then then you can do the impossible. Then you can be perfect. I mean, that's what the Mass is all about, right? It's the perfect sacrifice, not because we're there, but because Jesus is there and we're focused on him. And I guess some of it, too, is to know our own weaknesses, to know what does pull us into that mediocrity, and we know when we're slipping. Is that right? Yeah. I, I wonder. Uh, yeah, you have to know your weaknesses and to know your strengths. You know, I think... 
One of the uh, teachers at my school once told me that um, he said it's very easy to get focused on that one kid you're not getting through to and to direct all your energies at the one kid who just won't learn. And you forget that there are 15 other kids in the classroom who actually are learning. And I guess if you broaden that to include your whole life, you know, it's easy to get bogged down on that one vice, that one sin, you know, and to forget that you have all these other talents as well. And you can thank God for those too. I mean, not, not that you shouldn't focus on eliminating vice, obviously, but I think if the devil can't get you to do the wrong thing, he'll get you to obsess over not doing the wrong thing, and then you end up not doing the good things that you're so good at. Is that... Tell me more about uh, I, like the older monks and their role and, and how they help you. Because I, I, I try to encourage men in our society today you know, to be mentors and, mm. and their role. How do you see kind of that masculine charism coming through in the older monks? Uh-huh. <laughs> Gosh, these are such incredible questions. Um, and lucky, well, again, lucky for me, I don't have to answer them. I just think back to things that I've been told. But the, you know, in my community, there are a, a number, a growing number of young, energetic, excited monks. Uh, and there are, but there are also a growing number of old, wise monks, too, um, as we rise up through the ranks, I guess. Uh, and I think, I think the thing that holds our community together, because they don't always, we don't always agree. In fact, we virtually never agree on anything. But the old guys are patient. You know, the, it, one of them pointed out to me that passionate and patient both come from the same root. And the young guys are passionate. You know, they want to upend the church and, you know, start doing everything in Latin and incense everywhere and, you know, whatever. They call us the young fogies. And the old guys, they're, they're patient. So they say, okay, all right, you know, we'll do some of this, but let's slow down. <laughs> let's, let's wait, you know. We, one, of them, one of them actually said to me, uh, you know, I tried doing things that way in the 60s, and it didn't work. <laughs> so let's not do it in the 2010s. <laughs> let's, or let's slow, let's ease into this, you know. <laughs> so patience, I think. It, you don't, one doesn't think of patience as a masculine virtue. You think of conquering mountains, climbing mountains and stuff. But I mean, any, in, in a, it was a Julius Caesar said, anybody, you can, anybody will die for a cause. It's hard to find somebody who will live for one. And, but dying, you can do really quickly. <laughs> but living, boy, that's, that takes patience. And I think, yeah, that patience is, is that real the virtue of the elderly the masculine virtue of the elderly and when you look at the cultural landscape like working with your students and their parents and things where do you see they're hurting or wounded and how the faith can help them or what the church teaching or the benedictine spirituality how can that minister to them um gosh when it comes to teenagers I think the wounds that the guys are feeling are, are very different from the wounds that the girls are feeling, that the young women are feeling. Um, for guys, 
Well, I the the internet and pornography, I mean, is just such a huge cross for so many of them, and video games. Um, so, it, but but to put a more general label on it, it's sort of distraction is their cross, distraction from truth and distraction from beauty and distraction from prayer and distraction from life and and for the girls well, I don't work with girls very often but it feels to me like what they're up against is is a, a dehumanization or something a a um, a cheapening of life um, that they're not as distractible as the guys but they can they can get bogged down in the superficiality of of this of the culture. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> no, that that was it. I, I it is sometimes I do think about that. How does the impact of, on women and men? And it seems like oftentimes women suffer more in our culture. Mm. It's not like men oftentimes mm. are perpetrating it. <laughs> yeah. But that's not funny. But I mean, I I. Yeah. But in some ways, it's like it's you know as Plato even said, it's worse to commit evil uh, than to suffer it. Yeah, and so in some ways, it seems like men are suffering even more. But yeah, it, it does seem like you know women are objectified, dehumanized, told they're not enough, they don't look pretty enough, and all that kind of stuff. Men are told, I guess, they're not enough as well. But um, oh, yeah, I think there's also a an epidemic of narcissism. If if I it, this I'm totally talking off the top of my head now, but um, maybe that's why I wrote this book because you know I I probably shouldn't say this in public, but I had to discipline some kids at a party not long ago, and instead of disciplining them, when the parents arrived, they were angry at me, and you know I mean maybe I did it wrong. It's certainly possible, but. The first reaction of the parents was to suspect me of being, of, first, of having some mysterious motive to want to be cruel to their kids. Um, and, and I think this, the, and I thought to myself later, what lesson does this teach the kids, right? That they are, that they are the most important thing in the world, that their behavior is excusable no matter what, and they won't be held accountable, and that someone will always come to their rescue. And... I look at now at you know the the sort of YouTube generation and these riots at Berkeley because somebody spoke that they didn't like you know and it, their opinion you know my opinion is so important I mean since when does a 19 year old's opinion really count that much <laughs> I, I mean Saint Benedict does say consult the young because they are often give good advice but at the same time the young should be listening too you know and it just doesn't. I think that destroys you. You know, I think it end, leaves you feeling empty and sad and and really lost if you think you're the center of the world then where then then there's no gravity at all. You're just bumping around like a an atom in a vacuum or something. I yeah, I, I there is this we we have we have created this narcissism in them by yeah, that's what the whole self-esteem movement was. You're great. It doesn't matter what you do. You're always great, just the way you are. Mm -hmm. And we're not. None of us are great. We're all, <laughs> we're all awful. But but we, keep, and we're all wonderful. You know, you. I mean, now I'm sort of rambling. But but Saint Simeon, the new theologian, has a little hymn about 
it's it's a hymn of divine love and he says i look at myself and i realize that i'm made in the image of god and i'm just in awe he says, and I, I, I don't know whether to stand up or sit down or what to do with my arms because my arms are so wonderful. You know, I mean, that's, that is self-love or self-esteem in the healthiest sense. You know, we're all, our dignity does not depend on what we say or what we do. It's, it's because we are in the image of God. So, we, and, and, not, and we're not the center of the universe, but that's such a relief, isn't it? <laughs> or it ought to be. Yeah, because I, I think our culture gives a message. You have to look this way or do this, achieve this, have this ability, then you're worth something. And we can never do those things enough, right? Yeah. It's, it never fill that hole. I, I, I'm sorry. No, but, well, but then, then at the same time it says, no matter how well you do, it's perfect. No, no matter how poorly you do it. Now, you have to succeed and you have to do well and you have to be thin and you have to be beautiful and you have to be clever and you have to do it. But if you aren't, you're also fine. <laughs> so it's it's a totally contradictory message. No wonder they're confused and upset and unsettled. I mean, they say you have to achieve, but if you don't, that's fine. Uh, it seems like part of it too. I mean, I just never could convince myself that everything's okay, you know. <laughs> but I mean, the only time I felt it is if if friends, family loved me. I felt that love, or you had that experience of God. Then I said, okay, it's okay. Yeah, I'm a weak person. And that's okay, you know. That's that, not okay, <clears throat> right? <laughs> and Jesus, but that's okay, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I, I listened to a reflection somebody was given on the um, like these cultural initiation rites different cultures have had mm. over the eons, and and one of the messages it was Bishop Barron, I think, that was saying this that one of the messages was that <clears throat> you're not important, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're not important. I mean, what is this business about self-esteem? I mean, can you imagine John the Baptist, who was, by Jesus' account, the greatest man ever born, him saying, oh, I'm so great? No, no. It's a, he says, I must decrease. You know, and, and the psalmist is constantly saying things like, I'm a worm. You know, I'm, no, I'm not even a man. You know, And that's that's accurate, but it's also, again, I keep coming back to it, it's such a relief to find out that I'm a worm, <laughs> you know, because how much can really be expected of me? <laughs> right, right. But then I'm filled, then the sacraments fill me with this divine power, and then I'm in awe of myself, then I'm a god, you know, in the sense of uh, Athena St. Athanasius, who said, God became man, that man might become god, you know. Um, but living that contradiction is impossible without the cross, without the cross. So we've got this, this culture, this post-Christian culture that is living out the contradiction without the Christianity. So it's just, all you're left with is just contradiction now. There's no miracle at the heart of it. Yeah, it seems like you just see, you just see more and more hopeless, like in media, movie stuff, and... You know, we're just abandoning the true, the good, and the beautiful. You know, we're not even presenting it even anymore. And uh, so a lot of difficulties. You you told me something interesting that your, was it your your abbey is named after Our Lady Mediatrix of All Graces? <laughs> yeah. And uh, tell us about the role of Our Lady in your spiritual life and how she's helped you. Well, she's she and I have had a a, a fraught relationship. <laughs> I I grew up in the in in Texas, which is really pretty heavily Southern Baptist, 
and grew up with people saying, you worship Mary, you, you know, your statues to Mary are Mary idolatry, which isn't a word, by the way. Um, Mariology is, though, for the record. Um, but Mary, the, and so I grew up really afraid to pray to her, to ask her for her intercession, because I was afraid that she'd take the place of God. But as you mentioned, our, our abbey is named after Our Lady, the Mediatrix of All Grace, which is pretty heavy, pretty, pretty un-PC these days when we want to try to smooth things over with other Christians. I mean, the fact is, Jesus comes to us through her, so that makes her the mediator of all grace. Uh, I mean, now, I, mean, I, I remember my Protestant, one of my Protestant friends referring to her as this tube through which Jesus just shot into the world. I thought, what a, what a, first of all, what a vulgar, <laughs> what a, but that is what you reduce her to if she's not, if she does, if she isn't really an agent in our salvation, then yeah, she's just this tube. And that, you don't refer to anybody's mother that way. I mean, no one's mother is just a tube through which they show up. Right. I mean, they, she's got to be more than that. And if she's more than that, then she's all that. <laughs> as my seventh graders would say. Uh, so for me, I, I, I don't know. I'm still working on the personal side. Um, but I know, I know she's there. I know, good, lucky for me, she's, she's always there, <laughs> even if I'm not. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us, and we've got to get you to lunch. So uh, thanks. All right. My pleasure. <laughs>